Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. A judge says the only reservation recognized by the state of Oklahoma no longer exists. It's the latest in an ongoing series of legal volleys over jurisdiction playing out in the state. The stakes are high and each step in the legal process could have broad implications for all the other tribes in the state. We'll get the details of the Osage case and look at how it fits in context with the other major court decisions that speak to the heart of tribal sovereignty in Oklahoma. That's coming up right after the news. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano in for Antonio Gonzalez. Washington State's most populous county is getting ready to pay more than $5 million to settle a lawsuit threatened by the Suquamish tribe over more than 6 million gallons of sewage spilled into the Puget Sound. The Seattle Times reports the tribe filed an intent to sue in 2020, documenting almost a dozen times sewage overflowed from the West Point treatment plant in Seattle over 2018 and 19. The proposed settlement includes a timeline for almost $600 million in improvements to the plant, including new pipes, pumps, batteries, and other power supplies to keep pumps running in the event of a power outage. The spills generally happen during foul weather or blackouts. About half of the $5 million will go to a mitigation fund held by the tribe, the other half will go toward a new environmental project of the county's choosing, and the county will pay $240,000 of the tribe's legal fees. The proposed settlement, which was discussed and agreed to by the tribe and county officials earlier this year, passed the county's environment committee on Thursday and goes to full council for a vote as early as later this month. Actor and activist Sashin Littlefeather formally accepted an apology by officials at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The event at the Academy Museum comes nearly 50 years after she was booed and professionally boycotted for her speech during the 1973 Oscar Awards broadcast on behalf of Marlon Brando declining his award for Best Actor. Casting director and former president of the Academy, David Rubin, read from a letter of apology first presented to Littlefeather in June. For too long, the courage you showed has been unacknowledged. For this, we offer both our deepest apologies and our sincere admiration. Rubin said the Academy is at an inflection point for inclusion and representation. Littlefeather's 1973 speech called attention to the ongoing conflict at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, and called out the poor representation of Native people in popular media. At the recent event, Littlefeather said she understood the gravity of her role that night. I was representing all Indigenous voices out there, all Indigenous people, because we have never been heard in that way before. And if I had to pay the price of admission, then that was okay, because those doors had to be open. Billed as a healing event, her appearance included a discussion with producer Bird Runningwater, the co-chair of the Academy's Indigenous Alliance and former head of the Sundance Institute's Native Lab. The Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation is fighting for mineral rights against the state of North Dakota. 
North Dakota has reaffirmed an ownership claim over the bed of the Missouri River as it flows through Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, the home of MHA Nation, despite legal and historical precedent, and a memo from the U.S. Department of Interior that confirms tribal ownership. Inforum News reports that more than $115 million is at stake in oil and gas royalties. The dispute is pending before a U.S. District Court judge in a lawsuit filed by the tribe after the Trump administration reversed decades of federal policy, recognizing the tribe's ownership in a series of legal decisions going back to 1936 and two treaties from 1825 and 1851. The Biden administration reversed that Trump order back in February of this year, and the tribe has been trying to get a full accounting of royalties owed ever since. But the state's solicitor general wrote a letter to oil and gas producers claiming ownership based on the Constitution's equal footing doctrine, which declares a state holds ownership of navigable waters within its boundaries. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media's ninth biennial Vision Maker Film Festival, celebrating together. The Vision Maker Film Festival will present five weeks of indigenous films at visionmakermedia.org, October 10th to November 11th, 2022. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. An Osage County District Court judge has ruled that the Osage Reservation doesn't exist anymore. Until then, it was the only reservation in Oklahoma officially recognized by the state. Osage Nation Attorney General Clinton Patterson says the tribe is disappointed by the ruling, but not deterred. He said he remains confident the tribe is on solid legal footing. The judge's decision comes after a Cherokee citizen was charged with multiple criminal offenses within the Osage Reservation. He claimed the state had no jurisdiction on Indian land. We'll break down what is happening with the case and how the 2020 McGirt U.S. Supreme Court ruling plays a part. If you have a comment or question for today's show, please join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also comment on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest is on the line in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Billy Keene is an Osage Nation Congress member, an attorney, and a tribal citizen. Billy, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm humbled and honored to be on with uh, such distinguished legal minds. Thank you. Congressman Keene, it's a, it's a privilege to have you on the show as well. And I want to ask you, what was your initial reaction when you first learned of this Osage County District Court ruling earlier this month? It throws the legal status of your tribal lands into question. I was uh, shocked and disappointed, frankly. Um, so, you know, after McGirt, so I want to I want to kind of give a timeline going back. We had filed a, case, a tax case back in 2010. It was the Irby case. 
and it went all the way up to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals ruled that the Osage Nation, that we did not have a reservation. And there's some key language I want to focus on here. So in, the, in its ruling, the Tenth Circuit found that neither the 1906 Osage Allotment Act nor the Oklahoma Enabling Act contains express termination, termination language. So we were disappointed then. Um, and then in 2020, fast forward, um, there was the McGirt decision where the Supreme Court ruled that the Creek Nation reservation was never disestablished. And in this, Justice Gorsuch ruled that the new test for a reservation was whether Congress ever used express language to terminate a reservation. And they did not with in regards to the Creek Nation. This was a game changer, to say the least. After this happened, there's numerous other um, Oklahoma tribes that have won their reservation back post-McGirt. A few of those are the Cherokee along with the Quapaw. So with this new okay. case... Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. I'm sorry. So with this new case, we figured, well, um, let's go ahead and give it a shot. So in 1872, Congress established our Osage Reservation. And in it, I want to go ahead and read some language that Congress used to establish our reservation, which is in present-day Osage County, Oklahoma. In order to provide the Osage tribe of Indians with a reservation and secure them a sufficient quantity of land suitable for cultivation, lands in the in Indian Territory be and the same and the same is hereby set apart, set apart for and confirmed as their reservation. There's, it's, it's important to remember there's no timeline on this um, congressional language, so it's in perpetuity. So we figured under this new test, we'd go ahead and try again. So in December 8, 2020, 2021, we joined uh, a case, a criminal defendant, Indian defendant, and we tried to get a reservation back. We ruled that the state has no jurisdiction on not just trust land within Osage County, it's just fee land as well. And in this ruling, uh, the Osage County District Court shut it down. Judge Tate relied a lot on the Irby case um, in his ruling, and I want to read some language from his ruling from the Osage County District Court. The legislative history strongly suggests that Congress intended to disestablish the Osage Reservation with passage of the Osage Allotment Act at the very least, the two acts, when taken together, which would be the Osage Allotment Act and the Oklahoma Enabling Act, render congressional intent as to the disestablish of the Osage Reservation ambiguous. So let's step back and examine what we got here. So in the prior Tenth Circuit case, the Tenth Circuit ruled that neither the Allotment Act or the Enabling Act contained express termination language which is the new, the new test. You've got to have the express termination language. In Judge Tate's holding here in Osage County District Court, he's saying that those two, when taken together, one can infer congressional intent, which is just wildly disappointing. Um, I'm sure there's an appeals process. I can't really comment on the particulars of that as I'm an elected official. But like I said, it's just shocking and disappointing at the same time. 
I, I can totally understand uh, how you feel. And, and thanks for all that background and the history that, that led up to this decision. And so uh, to quote from that ruling, Congress intended, quote unquote, Congress intended to at some point disestablish the reservation. So is that enough to just say Congress intended? Is that the court's role to to make a decision like that? I mean, what's your position in terms of whether or not the court even has the authority to make this ruling? Yeah, so no, the new test is clear. Basically, if you have to infer what Congress meant to do, that doesn't meet the legal bar. So Justice Gorsuch in the McGirt case is saying this new test, Congress has to expressly say the termination, you know, the reservation is terminated. And I think it's also okay. ironic that in the Tenth Circuit ruling, the one which the Osage County judge relies on most recently, the Tenth Circuit said that neither this 1906 Osage Allotment Act or the Oklahoma Enabling Act contained the termination language. So what this Osage County ruling is doing, it's basically arguing as if McGirt never happened in my opinion. And that's, that's okay. what I, which is so shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so what I really want to get at here too, Billy, is, you know, we have listeners from all over Native America that tune into Native America calling in. And we, when we're hearing about these issues in Oklahoma and some of these recent court rulings and reservations being disestablished, I mean, it just sends shivers down everybody's spine because other communities are thinking to themselves, well, could this happen in our state? Could this happen with our tribal land? So what is it that you want people outside of the Osage Nation, even other Native people there in Oklahoma and beyond the state of Oklahoma, to really understand about this issue? Well, I want them to understand that, um, one, the law is the law. Um, you know, this isn't really like a complex area of law. Justice Gorsuch in his McGirt ruling was very clear that only Congress has the power to terminate a reservation. And if there's no express language, there's no termination. But moving beyond that, we now have examples of Oklahoma tribes. Um, they're trying to work together with the state of Oklahoma, but... The state of Oklahoma and Governor Stitt is just wholly hostile to Native American tribes. In fact, um, you know, with a lot of dire economic conditions the state faces, um, we're top 10 in most bad health outcomes um, across, across the board. Governor Stitt keeps hammering home this issue that this is the biggest issue the, the state faces, is the McGirt ruling. Luckily, we've seen no federal action on it um and you know tribes tribal nations we're willing to work with the state as partners in collaboration to try to you know there, there's big challenges ahead but we can work together with the state and make things better for everybody indian and non-indian alike so governor stitt is really doubling down on mcgirt and these issues and and i know a lot of the campaign ads there and just some of the rhetoric the political rhetoric is that um you know, these, these tribal nations and their jurisdiction and, um, you know, they're trying to take over and things like that. And and what are you most concerned about going forward and not only with some of these political um, tactics that are being used, but also just what does disestablishment mean for Osage tribal jurisdiction going forward? Well, it means that we don't have the jurisdiction. And I also want to kind of go back a little bit more in a timeline-wise. 
So when we enacted our Osage Nation Constitution back in 2006, I want to read a part of our Constitution. We said that we had um, jurisdiction over Osage County, our territory. The territory of the Osage Nation shall include the Osage Reservation, duly established by the Congress of the United States. Just this language created an uproar even here in Osage County among, um, you know, some people that live in and around Pahuska. We have a lot of people that own, own a lot of land, and just that sparked a lot of outrage. And we're talking, this was 16 years ago. So I think um, there is some general fear about if the Osage Nation does eventually have our reservation affirmed. But like I said, we can work with the state and county officials, and we can we can try to, you know, face these challenges together. We're speaking now with Osage Nation Congress member Billy Keene. He's also an attorney, and he's giving us an overview of this recent ruling there uh, by an Oklahoma or uh, Osage County District Court ruling and its impact on Osage tribal lands. And a lot going on right now in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we've covered the McGirt issue numerous times on our show. So if you'd like a little more background on the McGirt issue and how it is impacting different Native nations there in Oklahoma, take a look at our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. And if you look at the menu that says Back Shows, you can scroll through there and you can find that information, take a listen to one of those shows and get a better insight in terms of some of the background that we're talking about today. But we're going to talk more about this current issue there uh, impacting the Osage Nation there in northern Oklahoma, Pawhuska, Hominy, that part of the Oklahoma t country. And uh, we're going to be right back here after a short break, 1-800-996-2848. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Native bands and musicians are on a creative streak, churning out new music and taking it to the public. We'll get a sampling of a variety of new music from Native artists and take the pulse of the state of the industry. That's all coming up on the next Native America Calling. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free, confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the Osage Reservation Establishment thrown into question by an Oklahoma judge. Join our conversation by sharing your thoughts on the issue. The number to call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Elizabeth Homer. She's an attorney and associate justice on the Osage Nation Supreme Court. She's Osage. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And um, this ruling that um, that Billy just described uh, by this judge, it, it seems like such a stretch in regards to legal jurisdiction. What is your sense as to why uh, he chose to twist the language like that at this time? 
Well, I think that anyone who reads um, Judge Tate's opinion uh, can't help but notice that it's seriously intellectually flawed. Um, I mean, it's surprising to me that he just tosses off McGirt as though, you know, it's it's meaningless and then drills down on the Irby decision um, because that is just not correct. Um, we have the pr- controlling, you know, it's like the Supreme Court's opinions are controlling over the court. And I think that Judge Tate kind of didn't get that. And um, it's, um, I think that it's such a terrible opinion that leaves so much out of the analysis. You know, it's basically, the analysis is basically, well, Irby said that, and uh, that's just kind of how it is. And, um, you know, kind of in five pages, kind of tries to abolish our reservation. It's, it's really an outrage uh, and, and very flawed, very flawed. Any, you know, you have to wonder, you know, about his legal education. Uh, just it's that poor. Well, and alongside that, so this this really flawed uh, legal decision that you mentioned, this interpretation. But but what else do we know about this Judge Stuart Tate? What are what's his agenda? You know, I don't know Judge Tate. Um, all I know about Judge Tate is that he's um, you know a, a district court judge for Osage County, which is another thing that kind of adds to how terrible the decision is because you would think that a judge in Osage County, Oklahoma, on the Osage Reservation would have a better understanding of the jurisdictional framework that exists. And, I mean, his, the way he tossed off um, the reservation that it's, like, completely disestablished kind of overlooks the fact that we still have land in uh, our reservation that is held in trust and restricted status by the United States, but he doesn't like pay any attention to that. And he doesn't talk, you know, he says, oh, well, it's well established that, um, that Mr. Phillips, you know, is an Indian. But when you do these uh, prosecutions, you actually have to prove all of these things. You don't assume them. You know, th- th- these are federal statutes that determine you know, who is an Indian, what is Indian country, and it, there was none of that in Judge Tate's opinion. It, it was, you know, basically this is what Irby said, and that's how it is. Um, Let me ask a little uh, bit about the Tenth Circuit, but, you know, mostly it was the Irby decision from, you know, 20, what was that, 2010, Okay, okay. And uh, let me go ahead and have Billy chime in on this as well. Uh, Billy, Judge Stuart Tate, uh, he was a Governor Kevin Stitt appointee back in 2020. What do you know about his motivations? I honestly, um, I haven't been practicing long. I, I mean, I've, I've appeared a few, in front of him a few times, but I really don't know much about him, to be honest. Okay, all righty. Well, Elizabeth, uh, again, people are just really, really concerned about some of these developments there in Oklahoma. And I want to ask you about the criminal justice system uh, there uh, with the Osage Nation. And how's it being impacted? I mean, what sort of 
changes have had to occur since McGirt and then later with Castro Huerta. And now you've got these new developments uh, with these recent rulings coming up recently. Well, I think up to this up to this point, it's pretty much remained business as usual insofar as, uh, you know, as the court is concerned. Um, you know, we have our Constitution. Uh, we have our determination of what our jurisdiction is. And uh, we are not persuaded by, you know, by Judge Tate. We weren't even persuaded uh, by uh, the Irby decision or the, the Tenth Circuit. And uh, I, I think that McGirt, we were very happy and welcoming because it, we thought, oh, this horrible mistake um, that the courts have made in their analysis of the status of our reservation are now corrected. In fact, I once told a friend of mine, uh, another attorney, I said, you know, it's like McGirt was almost an apology to the Osage Nation for its treatment by the Tenth Circuit affirming, you know, the lower court decision in Irby. Uh, because all of the, you know, it was like almost point by point, um, the McGirt, Justice Gorsuch, kind of struck down that kind of analysis. And one of the things I want to add, I know that Billy was, um, or Congressman Keene was um, referring to a new standard, but I would call it the correct standard, um, because if you look um, back at these decisions, there was another case uh, in 2016 involving the Omaha Reservation, uh, and the Omaha Reservation was confirmed in that case. Uh, basically using what what uh, Justice Gorsuch was saying, which is, um, well, this establishment has never required any particular form of word. It does require Congress clearly express its intent to do so, with, commonly with an explicit reference to session or other language evidencing the present and total surrender of all Indian interests. Now, that kind of comes down from this prior case called Hagen v. Utah, where there was a finding of disestablishment. But in that case, the reservation had not only been allotted, but it had been open to non-Indian settlement. And these more magic words of disestablishment were used. The Osage Reservation, in contrast, was never open to settlement. The Osage Reservation, with the exception of a few little parcels here and there, was completely allotted to Osages. So that distinction is really critical here because the only way, even in the worst way of looking at it, you could have found a disestablishment is if the reservation ceased to exist because it was wholly allotted. And that just did not happen to the Osage at all. The other thing about the Osage Reservation um, that um, uh, Judge Tate overlooked is that all of the statutes he's referencing, the 1906 Act, the Osage Allotment Act, the, uh, the Oklahoma Enabling Act, the Oklahoma, um, the Oklahoma Act, they all refer to the Osage Reservation in prospective terms. If you look at the Code of Federal Regulations, it all refers to the Osage Reservation. I mean, everyone has understood mm -hmm. all this time 
that the Osage Reservation is a reservation. Even the state of Oklahoma accepted that for 100 years. You know, nobody really argued it. And now suddenly, you know, um, even in the wake of McGirt, which makes it very clear that if there's an ambiguity, you cannot infer disestablishment. And that's what this Judge Tate did. That's what the lower court did in the Irby decision. That's what the Tenth Circuit uh, did. And that's what Gorsuch said, no, that's wrong. And they are all wrong. Okay. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the Irby decision and, and, and next steps, because one of the, the biggest challenges here, as I understand it, is that um, the Osage Nation, because of the Irby decision, is now legally barred from, from litigating an issue that's already been decided. So uh, you folks are now, um, you have to enter cases as a friend of the court or an amicus. And uh, what types of challenges does that present going forwards in terms of, of trying to appeal this? Well, I cannot speak to the, um, you know, to the litigation that's ongoing right now because, number one, um, I'm not involved in it, you know. Uh, but, and I think that Tate referred to this, you know, so I can talk generally, but not about the specific strategies or, or things that are going on. But um, Tate referred to this idea that um, this is kind of law of the case, issue preclusion. He didn't rule on the question of issue preclusion, so he didn't rely on that to say that, um, you know, we can't litigate this question again. And, and, and it was, that was, like, good because issue preclusion does not apply if there has been a major change and or clarification of the law on, uh, on the holding. And that's what has happened here. So I don't think the Osage Nation is out of luck on this. We're not stuck with Irby. And, um, you know, uh, and I presume that uh, all of the lawyers are, you know, working, you know, to get this all straightened out, including uh, our attorney general at the Osage Nation. Elizabeth, what are some of the other legal consequences uh, that result in the disestablishment of a reservation? Seems like uh, the impacts would be far-reaching. Well, the significance of this is is that the Osage Reservation, our boundaries establish the territorial area within which our nation may lawfully assert and exercise its governmental powers. So to say that our reservation has been extinguished, basically, ipso facto, extinguishes our ability to govern ourselves. It's almost like a termination. Um, it's an outrage. Uh, and it is not, I mean, God, the Osage Allotment Act was um, amended in 1978 to continue the trust period perpetually. Right. So how, you know, where they get this, you know, it's the end of the Osage Nation kind of thing is um, is beyond me. And yes, should other tribes be worried about this? Heck, yeah. You know, um, mm -hmm. and we all need to, you know, come together and, um, you know, support each other in the protection of our homeland. 
let me bring Billy back in. Billy, I'm interested to know what uh, folks there, Osage tribal citizens, how they're feeling. Uh, are, are they worried? Are they concerned about the status of their reservation and some of these other issues impacting the Osage Nation? Yes, they are. There's a generalized state of anxiety. They are worried. Um, but going in, I do want to be clear that um, of all the tribes that recently did get their reservations affirmed in Oklahoma, we were the only one, to my knowledge, that had recently had a federal um, court of appeals deny us a reservation. So we knew that kind of challenge was that does make us a little bit different than the other Oklahoma tribes that have had their reservations affirmed. But I do want to speak on um, something that I think is the elephant in the room, even though you won't hear it from Oklahoma officials who are anti-reservation, and that's the civil jurisdiction. So it's much more complex. And, you know, Governor Stitt, he gets on these fear-mongering rants and talks about the criminal. No, no. Like the old adage, follow the money. What the state is afraid of is the, the civil side as far as things like taxation. So if the Osage Nation reservation is affirmed, any Osage that lives in Osage County and gains their money from a source within Osage County would be exempt from state tax, would be exempt from state income tax. That's huge. The Cherokees had their reservation recently affirmed. There's a they want a case with the Oklahoma, uh, an Oklahoma tax court, where any Cherokee who resides in one of their territories and gains their income from a source within the Cherokee Nation is exempt from state taxation. So that's that's a big elephant in the room, and I think it don't really get a lot of attention, but it it, it should regarding this this whole debate. Billy, I, I want to stick with you. You know, I. I... I had a chance to go. I hadn't been back to Oklahoma since before the pandemic, but I was there earlier this year. I was in there in March, and I was down in the Tulsa area. And, and I was reminded at how the tribes in the state of Oklahoma are so integrated. You're, you're driving down through Tulsa or one of these turnpikes, and and if you blink, you'll miss a sign that might say, you know, you're now entering tribal lands of a specific nation. And um, it, as opposed to some other parts of the country, again, the reservation or Indian lands are, are, are very um, joined together. They're, they're, like I said earlier, they're, they're very connected with um, some of these urban areas and other parts. And I know it might be a little bit different up there uh, in Osage country, but um, with regards to some of these political tactics and how they're, they're using these issues to really electrify or galvanize some of these Oklahoma voters, um, going forward, is it difficult for you folks uh, there in Oklahoma, tribal nations, to really explain some of these issues to, to people that don't understand? Like you mentioned, these civil issues, you know, like, okay, today it could be, um, you know, a, a tribal court issue or a criminal issue. Well, maybe at some point um, they'll come after your land or something like that. How do you explain to folks that aren't Native American in Oklahoma why these issues are so important? I'm glad you brought that up because... Um... There used to be a test as far as disestablishing a reservation that was called the Solemn Test. The McGirt test abolished that, but two of the factors there, so the Solemn Test was explicit statutory language. So that was McGirt. McGirt just used that and went with it. But the Solemn Test had two other factors, surrounding circumstances, and this is the big one, and subsequent events. So in our Irby case, the Tenth Circuit actually looked at what you were saying, how we don't look like a normal reservation, right? 
there's so much assimilation. Um, like you said, you can be driving in Tulsa and you'll be in Creek, uh, Creek Nation Reservation. Well, I could head north to Owasso and I'd be in Cherokee country. I could do that within a span of 30 minutes. So courts have used the reality of, you know, how our reservations are so assimilated to kind of override that clear statutory language. And, and I went to Haskell Indian Nations University when I was young. And, you know, if you, you tell people, well, I'm from the res in Oklahoma. And, you know, them Indians, well, they'd say, well, they're, they're from a real reservation. You know what I mean? Like, it, like their reservation don't look like the reservations here because we're so assimilated. And, yeah, I, that is a huge challenge because, like you said, anyone that's not paying attention, they wouldn't even know if they're in Indian country or not. Those are the words of Osage Congressman Billy Keene and uh, telling us about he was a Haskell rascal and, and some of the challenges that he had when explaining uh, Indian lands to, to folks in other parts of Native America. And Billy, I was a Haskell rascal as well, so I appreciate those comments. Folks, if you got a question, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're diving into a judge's decision questioning the validity of the Osage Nation Reservation. Still time to join our conversation. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got a third guest for you today. He's joining us from Lansing, Michigan. His name is Matthew Fletcher. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School and author of the Turtle Talk blog. He is of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Matthew, you've been on the show before. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Sean. It's good to hear from you. You as well, Matthew. And, and I want to go back to, to what's happening down here in Oklahoma and how it impacts Native folks in other parts of the country. And, and really, I want to get to the heart of just how big a deal is this for other Native nations outside of Oklahoma Again, are all tribes now at risk of potentially having their reservations disestablished by courts, or is this something really unique to just the status of Indian lands in Oklahoma? Well, I think what you're seeing is um, reservations that were disestablished prior to the 2020 decision in McGirt um, are kind of a little bit out of luck. There are some possibilities, and Osage is one of them, where... um, tribal members or other Indians who have been prosecuted by the state could potentially reopen a reservation boundaries case. And I think that's the kind of case we're talking about here today in Oklahoma state courts. And if that um, uh, prisoner or uh, convict ends up going, filing a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in federal court, then it's very possible that uh, disestablishment decision for from Osage and the Tenth Circuit could be revisited. But um, that's going to be unusual for a lot of reservations. I don't think this particular case is going to have a huge impact in Indian country. 
Um, like I said, it, the, really what it, what's happened because of McGirt is it's the before and after reservations. The tribes that uh, still have unlitigated reservation boundaries um, will be likely litigating under the McGirt regime, which is much more favorable than the regime that we, we were talking about before. Billy Keene and Liz Homer mentioned the solemn decisions in, in Hagen versus Utah. Those cases really have become fundamentally irrelevant after McGirt. So, but if you are a tribe that has litigated your reservation boundaries or you were the tribe that was the subject of litigated reservation boundaries that you had nothing to do with because it was a, uh, a criminal defendant or something like that, um, then it's going to be really, really hard and difficult to reopen those cases. Now, are these mostly tribes in Oklahoma then that are, that are going to be facing these issues and challenges going forwards? Um, Oklahoma is so unusual right now. Uh, it's just such a hot spot of anti-Indian political rhetoric. Um, keep in mind that Oklahoma judges, like judges in most states and state courts, are elected officials. And so uh, judge in this case, the judge in the Court of Appeals, judges in the Oklahoma Supreme Court, they're all elected. And if they rule in favor of tribes, they will be attacked by the governor and the attorney general of the state of Oklahoma, and they will become targets for significant political opposition from, from, that, from that small group of people and the high-level uh, uh, political elite in Oklahoma. And uh, nobody really wants that to happen. So they're going to look for any excuse. Uh, judges in Oklahoma go look for any excuse they can find to rule against tribes so they don't face that kind of political heat. And um, so I'm, I'm not entirely clear that I'm not entirely sure that this has a huge impact outside of Oklahoma. I will say this, that since McGirt, the, it, the lower courts have been really hit and miss on whether they're going to apply McGirt faithfully. So right after McGirt came out, you might recall the um, Wisconsin Oneida Nation had a case in the Seventh Circuit up in uh, Wisconsin and Illinois. And right after McGirt, they prevailed. The court there just said, well, McGirt changes everything and applied McGirt. And uh, the tribe had its reservation uh, uh, disestablishment case dismissed. It was in good shape. Whereas the little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians did not prevail in the Sixth Circuit um, under the McGirt regime. And so it, it really remains to be seen whether the lower courts are around the country are going to take McGirt seriously. I think, um, I think they have up until, uh, but it, I think it's an open question now. That, you know, the Supreme Court's changed um, its constituency. There's new people on the court. Um, the court issued that case in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, which is a, a night and day case in terms of tone from the Supreme Court. And lower court judges take the tone from the Supreme Court very seriously. So if the court is saying very hostile or anti-tribal things, the lower court judges are trying to read the tea leaves, and they tend to go down that route as well. Okay. And what about the scrutiny on, on tribal jurisdiction now? Uh, and judges who are making these decisions previously about jurisdiction without taking on the question of disestablishment, uh, what do we need to be mindful of there? Are you you're talking about state court judges thinking about the, the practicalities of jurisdiction going forward? Exactly, yeah. Well, that's a real open and uh, open question. Uh, there, it's just uh, in Oklahoma in particular, everything is just kind of completely up in the air in a lot of places. But keep in mind, if you talk to the attorney generals for the various tribes, from the five tribes in particular, post McGirt, what they'll tell you is outside of a few outlier 
counties and municipalities, um, they're actually cooperating quite well with local governments. And um, there were cross-deputization agreements in, in, in effect before McGirt, and it helped to um, pave the way for um, you know, an easier transition to the new tribal and federal regime that comes into play after a case like McGirt. Um, it's, it's sort of the, uh, the jurisdictions that play off of what the, you know, the, the governor of Oklahoma is pitching politically, uh, the ones that sort of carry the governor's water that uh, cause some of, the, some of the trouble. And that's, you know, that's unfortunately because that's the squeaky wheel. That's what you read about in the news. That's what the state of Oklahoma can point to in its briefs. And unfortunately, we saw from the Castro Huerta case, that's what the conservative majority in the Supreme Court can point to. They, don't have, they can ignore the realities on the ground that things are actually moving progressively quite well um, by focusing on some really bad outlier cases. And that's the real trouble when you have elected officials, when you have uh, elected judges, when you have officials or judges that are looking for a reason to rule against tribes. All they need, need is one reason, even if it's a specious reason, um, and that's enough sometimes to lose a case. Matthew, I think what might be helpful if, if you gave us just a, a quick little law lesson regarding the federal system. And there are three primary types of federal courts. And um, how do they how are they all kind of interacting? And who do we really be playing, paying the most attention to right now with regard to these three primary types of federal courts? You have district courts, appellate courts, and, and of course, the Supreme Court. Well, I think, in my view, that the most important level of courts in the country outside of tribal courts, which I think are way more important than any of these, um, are the really the intermediate appellate courts. So when we're talking about this case in Oklahoma, we're talking about the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the reason I say those courts are more important is that they hear hundreds and thousands of cases a year. The U.S. Supreme Court hears only a few dozen cases a year, maybe one, two, or three federal Indian law cases. They can't hear all of the cases. So what they say certainly is supreme at the Supreme Court, but they don't talk very much. They don't speak very often. So in a case like this, what's, why the Tenth Circuit is so important is that even though this case started in state court, so you start with a state or county prosecution of an Indian person, that will progress through the state appellate court system. And in Oklahoma, the criminal side is the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, once that's concluded in state court, there's no more state remedies. There's nothing left to go. And you would think state court's really important there. Actually, what happens then is that the person who's been convicted, that probably a tribal member, can then petition in federal court for a writ of habeas corpus. And that's a separate legal proceeding that allows that tribal member to challenge the jurisdiction and the power of the state to prosecute him in the first place. And so usually they go to federal district court. That's just one judge. There's always an appeal to a federal appellate court. And that's originally where McGirt really happened. Um, it was, back then it was a case involving a different person named Murphy, but that's where the real action happened. And that's very possible what could happen with the Osage Reservation Boundaries case, is that, yes, uh, 10, 15, 10 years ago there was a tax case, the tribe lost, the Tenth Circuit said the reservation boundaries were diminished or disestablished. But now the McGirt case has happened, and the Tenth Circuit has the ability to re-examine its prior precedent on reservation boundaries and um, to, to actually reverse itself. That, that is a possibility that could happen. I won't predict what the chances of that are happening. It's not particularly good. 
But let's say that does happen. The Tenth Circuit rules and says those Osage boundaries, boundaries reservation remain extant. That it's extremely unlikely for the Supreme Court to take on that case. They'll just let it go. Um, I, what I mean by that is, percentage-wise, the chances are low, just as a matter of um, actual percentages. Now, I don't know what the Supreme Court is like. They like to pluck cases that fulfill their political commitments. Um, and sometimes they do that in Indian law as well. And hopefully they'll just leave this case alone, hypothetically, if that ever happens. So that's why I say the federal intermediate courts of appeal are the most important ones. Okay. And Matthew, we're going to have to, to move on here in about another minute. But I, I want to ask you, does it, can a judge face any consequences for making what are obviously political decisions that aren't backed up by law? Well, in, 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 a, in a place like Oklahoma where judges are elected, that's what you do. You vote them out of office. Absolutely. And it can be done. Um, the target, targets in this case will have to be the judges in the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, they're the highest court in terms of criminal cases. And it's, it's, I don't know that any tribes or group of tribes have actually targeted um, judges for purposes of um, getting them out of office because of a series of bad decisions. But... Tribal tribes have targeted senators, for example, Slade Gordon in Washington State was a senator, uh, United States senator, who the tribes targeted. He was an Indian fighter, anti-Indian crusader. The tribes got him voted out of office in the year 2000. It doesn't happen very often, but if the tribes are really concerned about what's happening in the Oklahoma courts, they can dedicate political resources to finding a different candidate for judges. Matthew, thank, for, thank you for those additional insights. And folks, we're going to go ahead and switch gears here now. And we've got a special report coming to you from Bethel, Alaska. As many of you know, the storms up there in Alaska are really, really bad. And there's been a lot of really bad weather conditions. So joining us now from Bethel is Nina Kravinsky. She is a news reporter at KYUK. Nina, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely, Nina, and uh, we're all really concerned about what's going on up there with Alaska. We're hearing about these 54-foot waves and homes being uprooted from their foundations. Can you give us an update? How serious are things right now? Yeah, so things are pretty serious. Um, floodwaters are starting to recede, uh, which is really good news. Now people here are, are, are looking around and, and trying to assess the damage. Um, you know, I'm pretty far inland. Bethel's on a river, so we got some flooding. Um, but like you said, communities up and down the coast uh, are really experiencing the worst of this. Um, you know, like you said, severe damage. One community uh, on the coast, Hooper Bay, it's got a population of about 1,300. Um, it's, it's kind of the biggest community in the area. Um, and of those 1,300 people, 300 people uh, have been taking shelter at the school uh, because of power outages uh, and damage to homes. Um, the power is still out in a lot of places. Uh, in, in Hooper Bay, uh, a lot of the, the village still doesn't have power. Um, and a lot of, a few different communities are still under boil water advisories. Um, in some of these villages, power is still out at the airport, too. That's a really big problem because these are places that are only accessible by plane or boat. Um, which means this is kind of a race against the clock. In about three weeks here, uh, the, the rivers are going to start to freeze over, which makes it even harder to get supplies to some of these hardest-hit places. Nina, have there been any deaths? No, there haven't been any deaths or serious injuries. 
Okay. And and some of these areas that are without power, especially the airports, any idea how long it's going to take to get power back? Yeah, so uh, no, no uh, estimate uh, from me right now, um, but uh, the National Guard and Red Cross volunteers are, are just kind of starting to mobilize to places. Uh, you know, it, there were uh, really stormy conditions over the weekend, uh, which made it really hard to get out to some of these communities. Um, so now is kind of when a lot of the help from uh, other parts of the state are coming to some of these smaller communities along the coast. And can you remind us, when did the storm start and, and when were they really at their worst? Was it over the weekend? Yeah, it was over the weekend. So um, on uh, Friday night overnight into like Saturday morning uh, is when uh, the, the really serious part of the storm was happening where I am here uh, in the southern part of, of the uh, west coast of Alaska, um, and the, the kind of like the southern uh, bit of where the storm was really bad. Um, so uh, we got really uh, high winds here in Bethel on Friday night. I was uh, I am living in the radio station right now. Um, and so I was feeling the wind kind of shaking the radio station a little bit on Friday night as I was uh, as I was falling asleep. Um, and so Saturday morning, really high uh, floodwaters along the coast uh, and, and into the day on Saturday, uh, serious flooding on Saturday. And then up in the in the northern the parts of the, the state where the northern parts of the state where this uh, storm was really bad, floodwaters were just starting to recede um, last night, yesterday. Um, so uh, it really kind of because of the the large, large scope of this storm over oh, nearly a thousand miles of coastline were affected um it it kind of lasted the whole weekend now is this the worst storm you've ever experienced personally there in alaska well uh so i'm not a good gauge i've only been here uh uh about a month <laughs> but i've, I've <laughs> okay. talked to a lot of people who have said <laughs> who okay. have said that well, this is the worst experience they've ever they've ever uh a lot of people that I've talked to have said this is the worst storm that they've ever okay. experienced. Um, that, that's pretty common refrain you're hearing here right now. Okay. Well, Nina, it sounds like it's definitely trial under fire for you up there in Alaska. Only there one month and you're in this um, epic storm there. But Joe, boy, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to you and everybody else there, all of our brothers and sisters in Alaska. And folks, we have reached the end of our hour. So I'd like to thank all of our guests today, Billy Keene, Elizabeth Homer, Matthew Fletcher, and Nina Kravinsky for spending time to explain this recent district court ruling in Oklahoma and also an update on the weather there in Alaska. Join us on Native America Calling In tomorrow as we hear about some new music from Native musicians. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference October 11th, 12th, and 13th 
hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.